Welcome and thank you for joining us on the third instalment of The Day Today from Ropes and Grey, a podcast series brought to you by the data, privacy and cybersecurity practice at Ropes. In this podcast, we'll discuss exciting and interesting developments in the world of data. We feature attorneys at Ropes and Grey, as well as clients, regulators and other industry leaders in conversation about what's new in the world of data. I'm Edward Machin, an attorney in Ropes and Grey's data privacy and cybersecurity practice. I'm based in our London office. I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Fran Faircloth, who's based in our Washington DC office. Thanks, Edward. This week, I'm talking to Jackie Coven. Jackie is head of cyber threat intelligence at Chainalysis. In that role, she tracks cyber criminals and nation state actors who are involved with ransomware payments and other cryptocurrency schemes. She's part of their ransomware task force at Chainalysis and came to this role from the intelligence community. She was previously an intelligence officer with the Department of Defense and has a really interesting background and should have a lot of interesting things to say about this. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Welcome, Jackie. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Fran. Just to start out, can you introduce yourself to our listeners a little bit? Sure. I'm Jackie Burns-Coven. I lead cyber threat intelligence at the blockchain intelligence company, Chainalysis. And what does that involve? What are your day-to-day activities at Chainalysis like? Yeah, so Chainalysis is a data company. We're the blockchain intelligence company. So we provide software, data, investigative services, and training to our customers. And that can be anyone from regulators, government intelligence services, law enforcement, as well as private sector, financial institutions, cryptocurrency businesses, cybersecurity firms, uh, even brands. And the core of our platform is the data, that's blockchain data, and attributing different individuals and entities to specific cryptocurrency wallets. And so my team is focused on cyber threat actors and their enablers on the blockchain, tracking their scams, stolen, and extorted funds on the blockchain, but also all of those purchases leading up to that Flashpoint event. So sellers of access, sellers of malware as a service, crypting services, bulletproof hosters, all of those components that comprise an attack, and then where the funds go post-attack. Sounds really fascinating. How did you get into this area? So I started in the intelligence community. Blockchain was not even in my (laughs) vocabulary. Uh, Neither was OSINT. Um, If something wasn't top secret, then it had no value to me. That was my mindset back in the day. And it wasn't until I actually left the IC to go to graduate school that I discovered blockchain technology. And as an intelligence officer, I was an information junkie. And I was really intrigued by how the blockchain worked and how it could be a source of record, how it was immutable. And it was the perfect combination at Chainalysis of this advanced technology and going after bad guys, which is what I was passionate about in the IC. (laughs) And um, you have that at scale at Chainalysis, the transparency of the blockchain and the ability to follow funds and use them for attribution of threat actors. It's just an incredible capability that I never had exposure to before. I can see how that could be really interesting and very helpful 
um, to people in the private sector, even. I'm just thinking of my clients when they are under these cyber attacks. Um, can you tell us about some of the more interesting matters you've worked on? Yes, so ransomware has loomed large over the past couple years. That really hits the blockchain use case on the nose. The ransomware payment is usually uh, demanded in a form of cryptocurrency, mainly Bitcoin. And so we've been looking at those threat actors behind those attacks where the funds are going. Notably, we were used to assist the attribution of a Canadian threat actor who was deploying the NetWalker ransomware, who was sitting right in our backyard in Canada. Um, And they were able to cover $30 million of of cryptocurrency that were like largely the proceeds of ransomware. So that was that was um, a big case. And that there continues to be opportunities like that. I think there's this misconception that ransomware is only conducted by threat actors based in Russia. And I think <laughs> it's actually a global problem. And uh, funds are moving all the time. So it's it's a constant cat and mouse game. I would imagine that the development of ransomware as a service has only made it more widespread, more global. Yes, it, it's definitely made the problem more challenging. It's expanded these capabilities to threat actors who didn't have the resources to to launch these kind of campaigns on their own. But it's also put a bigger target on their back because they're all under one umbrella. So it's made the center of gravity more obvious. And we have seen successful takedowns as a result. The Hive ransomware most recently, uh, but several other strains are no longer in existence because of international scrutiny that has been placed on these actors. That's really fantastic. What kind of things are keeping you or your clients up at night these days? We have the ability to get alerted when funds move uh, immediately. And so the types of threat actors we look at are global, and they're up at all hours of day and night. And so when your alert goes off that funds are on the move, I mean, we love this stuff. And and a lot of our analysts are up and and tracing the funds and alerting various folks with equities on, on those cases. So that's probably the most literal thing <laughs> keeping me up at night. That makes a lot of sense. I think when we, I think all, when we signed up for these careers, we knew those kind of things were going to happen. And um, it sounds like for you, similar to me, part of the fun is the adrenaline of those kind of exact crisis situations. Exactly. Is there anything particularly interesting or exciting or even weird? in the cybersecurity world that you've been watching recently? I think what comes to mind is first first kind of a sad case, which is related to privacy. And I think more recently, there's been, you know, an onslaught of ransomware attacks against the health services and hospitals. And we actually saw a breast cancer facility get attacked. And um, in a sad turn, one of the patients is actually suing the the care facility for not protecting the data. I, I think one of the sad realizations of, of this is that the hospitals and schools being attacked, uh, dumping 
children, minors, um, medical patients, uh, medical history, uh, healthcare history, like mental health documentation. I don't often think about privacy in my work, though it rules everything I do. Um, InfoSec is all about privacy and ransomware is all about the the breach of privacy. Mm-hmm. And and those cases remind me of that uh, when I when I forget that what's at the heart of what we do. I think on the lighter end of the spectrum regarding privacy, I think there's been some almost humorous quotes resurfacing from former administrators of mixing services. So for those unfamiliar, a mixing service, also called a tumbler, their purpose is to um, receive deposits of cryptocurrency, essentially jumble it up with other people's funds, and it spits out your funds on the other end, and it makes it more difficult for investigators and tracers to to follow the flow of funds. And we've had a successful takedown because of global law enforcement on a major mixing service called Chip Mixer. And old comments from that administrator have resurfaced saying, uh, privacy is not a crime. <laughs> but then the the admin goes on to say that they, they weren't aware that North Korea was depositing funds there. So admitting to kind of this gross negligence <laughs> and the lack of any kind of transaction monitoring. And we've seen similar comments from former um, mixers, but the takedown of Chip Mixer was it was a huge win, not just for for ransomware, but all manner of of crimes and and criminals globally that were using it to obfuscate their flow of funds. That's wonderful. Your comments about uh, the kind of connections between infosec and privacy and data um, really ring true because my practice kind of mixes all of those, and I think especially the rise of double extortion ransomware, which probably has come up mainly because people like you have been so successful at going after the attackers. And so people weren't paying the ransoms as often. But I think that just really makes it more salient. And especially when the attackers are going after places like you mentioned, like hospitals and schools, where you have really sensitive data. um, And that kind of threat of exposure of that is really dangerous. Yeah, that's a great point. And we recently published our 2022 crypto crime report retrospective, which found that ransom payments had dropped significantly as much as 40% from the year prior, which was nearly $800 million. And we're hovering around four to $500 million in 2022. And that's not to say that attacks aren't happening. We were very, we, we wanted to make that very clear that uh, attacks are persistent. What is clear is that these threat actors are having a harder time extorting funds. There's more friction. Their victims were better prepared, better defended, had backups, had plans. And so as a result, they could be looking at those more vulnerable institutions and ratcheting up the pressure from double to triple extortion to quadruple extortion, you know, and um, and so it's an unfortunate consequence of that. But I think there are lessons to be learned from why victims in some cases didn't need to pay uh, 
or refused altogether. And, and some of it is defenses. Some of it is law enforcement activity that is taking down these networks. And I think and I hope that we'll see more and more instances of uh, fun recovery for these victims. Um, and we're, we saw several instances of assets getting seized from uh, ill-gotten gains. And I think that's a heartening trend that we're going to continue to see. I think the high ransomware example was a really, really kicked off 2023 in a good way. Um, and that was another example of why victims didn't have to pay because there was a decryptor available. Yeah. And that's so that was in just a, an incredible win uh, all around. Yeah, that was a really wonderful development for a lot of a lot of people I know. Um, so if I have a client that comes to me and they've been hit with a ransomware attack, how can you help them? So first, I would refer to literature from FBI and CISA, Secret Service, on the, on the necessity to report. So I think reporting to law enforcement as soon as possible is the best tack to take. And that, not saying that there's a decryptor available necessarily, but in the case of Hive, there was. Yeah. And if you had reported it, you would have been able to get help probably. And so where we come in is, for, for one, tracing funds after a ransom is paid. Um, we have... Uh, clients that look to us to try to to track the payment and and see if they can recover the funds. But we also have incident response firms, law firms, cybersecurity firms that look to us, um, that look at our data set to try to figure out if they're paying a potentially sanctioned entity, which is another problem that a victim doesn't want to have to deal with. Wait, what? I got hit by ransomware and now I could be you know, potentially violating sanctions. And so what we've seen over the past couple of years, and it really accelerated last year, was this rebranding that ransomware actors undertook. And that's as cybersecurity researchers, blockchain investigators discovered that a ransomware strain was a was tied to a sanctioned entity, uh, they would just change their names. Uh, make it harder to to discover. And what we found on the blockchain actually is that just they are reusing the same wallets. It's <laughs> as um, as many may have found out personally uh, during uh, the Silicon Valley Bank um, scare. It's hard to change bank accounts. It's hard for these threat actors to find new laundering mechanisms and off-ramps and not just find them, but trust them. Mm -hmm. um, because there's scammers out there. They might not get their funds back. And so we see oftentimes that threat actors, including ransomware actors, will reuse the same wallets or reuse the same laundering patterns. And so we can often tell fairly easily on the blockchain that one brand has like rebranded to another. So we see a lot of incident response firms um, that are doing due diligence on chain prior to paying uh, to understand their potential risk. Not only do we see 
designated entities or strains as a concern, but we do see um, threat actors based in nation states that are sanctioned jurisdictions. We do see ransomware emanating from North Korea, from Iran, and without any specific designation tied to those strains, victims are left kind of with limited resources to try to discern whether they're paying a designated entity. That is so interesting. I just had a client the other day say, if these people are hiding on the blockchain, how will we know if we're, you know, paying someone on the OFAC list? So it's good to know that there are those resources out there. So at what point in the process um, should a private entity be looking to contact Chainalysis for your help? Yes. So after an attack, I would certainly advise that someone undergoing a a cyber incident or breach contact law enforcement and report accordingly. We do have many clients that are reporting cryptocurrency addresses to us so that we can tag it in our software. And what that does is it really plugs them into our community of cryptocurrency businesses that might receive those tainted funds. And at the end of the day, if they receive that ransom payment or stolen funds or scammed funds, that cryptocurrency business will get an alert that they've received tainted funds and can freeze the funds, file a SAR, uh, respond to subpoenas accordingly. It just makes responding to that incident so much quicker when they're able to have that visibility on chain through our platform. We also experience incidents regularly where ransom payments reported to us will have law enforcement entity from the U.S. or another uh, jurisdiction contact us um, with more information about that incident or they've been able to recover payment from that incident and require talking to the victim to confirm that it was indeed the proceeds of ransomware. So I, we really do have this global data set in this community that can make time to, to seizure much quicker, but also enhance our collective intelligence picture on the ecosystem. So we have a very comprehensive library of all the ransomware families and payments. So it allows victims to cross-check against, to understand, has this been paid before? Did that payment go to an Iranian exchange? <laughs> Is it likely an Iranian strain? And they can make that determination based on their risk threshold, whether or not they're going to pay. That That's fantastic. I mean, we know the threat actors are out there talking to each other and coordinating to some extent. So it's great that the victims also have resources uh, like you that can help them do the same kind of coordination. Thanks, Jackie. That was really fascinating. And now, Edward, I'm going to ask you the same question that I just asked Jackie. As we normally do at the end of the show, what's the strangest or most interesting or even the best thing that you've heard about in privacy in the last few weeks? So I think it's the strangest and the most interesting thing. uh, And that's the explosion of public interest and regulatory interest in AI. So in the UK, Uh, In the last couple of weeks, we have had the UK government uh, issue its regulatory approach into how they are going to uh, govern and oversee AI, which is generally 
viewed as quite a light touch approach. Uh, you contrast that to the European Union, which is much more top down and uh, uh, heavy handed and prescriptive in terms of uh, legislation. Also in the EU, in the last week or so, we have seen ChatGPT, the famous or infamous uh, chatbot, um, being banned in Italy. So what we're starting to see now is this area really hotting up in terms of regulatory scrutiny, uh, companies looking at what they're doing, and frankly, individuals questioning a little bit more about how their data are being used. Uh, We're still at the very, very early stages of this uh, development, but it promises to be uh, certainly one to watch. How about you, Fran? So the most interesting thing I've heard this week came during a panel at IAPP yesterday. Uh, Our listeners may be familiar with IAPP, the International Association of Privacy Professionals, and the summit that happens every spring in Washington, D.C. So we're in the middle of it right now. And at a panel yesterday, uh, Melanie Fontes-Rainer, HHS's director of OCR, uh, she said that HHS is actively looking at multiple healthcare providers' websites for allegedly misusing data, probably involved with pixel use is what we're expecting. This was, you know, surprising to a lot of people in the audience. It, it broke news that, you know, HHS may be expanding their scrutiny of this to a lot more health systems. She referenced a study published earlier this week that came from researchers at Penn and Carnegie Mellon that said that almost 99% of hospitals use online data trackers. Not incredibly surprising given that probably 99.9% of the internet uses them. The study was looking at uh, websites in 2021. So before HHS had come out with their guidance on use of trackers, and I know a lot of health systems and hospitals have changed practices since then. Uh, So it will be interesting to see where those investigations go. Absolutely. I think these are two topics that we'll be returning to the podcast probably sooner rather than later. Well, that's it for another episode. Thank you to everyone who tuned into this episode of The Day to Day from Ropes and Gray. And thank you, Jackie, for joining us. If you would like to join us for an episode or you know someone who we need to have on the show, please reach out to Fran or me via email or we're both on LinkedIn. Uh, If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe and you can listen to the series wherever you regularly listen to your podcasts, including on Apple, Google and Spotify. Spotify.